Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. How's it going? It's been a while since we've recorded. It's been a little while. A lot has happened. It hasn't been that much time uh, as the clock turns. I'm doing all right. Uh, I live here in Chicago, so we've seen quite a bit of protest action. And also, unfortunately, last weekend, a fair amount of rioting and looting, I'm sorry to say. Uh, But generally, we are in good spirits. And uh, my only regret from this weekend is that I'm missing a protest right now uh, to record this. I mean, I'm not sorry to be recording this, but I kind of wish I could. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> yes. Um, so we got to make it a good one, but I think it's Yeah, definitely. Be. Yeah, we're excited to get back on the air after a week away and, um, and to talk about some topics that feel timely. Great. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So the main topic today is going to be about actually something that feels, like you said, quite timely at the intersection of data science and uh, racial justice, uh, like the criminal justice system and how it interacts with the races of people who pass through it. So recidivism risk predictions, we're going to do a deep dive. Before we dig into that, and we'll give this information again at the end for anybody who wants to listen through and then uh, grab a pencil at the end. One thing you and I have been talking about over the last few days is ways that we can we can get involved in some of the protests that are happening and some of the stories that are coming out in the course of those protests. And something that we have here, obviously, is a platform of a bunch of people who like to listen to interesting stories about data science and technology. And so we wanted to use that to do something a little bit different than what we usually do, namely just have you and me sit here and chitter chatter back and forth. And so we'd like to invite startups, open source libraries, data science organizations, etc., with black founders uh, or black owned or any groups with a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion to reach out and um, we'll give you a platform. Now, we will be doing uh, some selection, obviously, because we're probably going to get a number of people writing in and we need to do some curation to figure out what groups are best for our audience. But um, that is something that we feel is important to do to show up at this time. Yeah, so we would love to share those stories if you have one that's that you think is worth telling uh, on this podcast, probably in the form of like an interview or whatever. Uh, So again, we'll mention it at the end of the show, uh, but hope to have a chance to get to know some of our listeners a little bit better and get to know, tell the stories of interesting parts of the data science community that, I don't know, maybe don't get told as often as sometimes your white college dropout classic kind of startup founder story stuff. So I'm excited about that. Right. So you can email us at Ben or at Katie at LinearDigressions.com, or I think I think hello at LinearDigressions.com goes to both of us. So um, Oh, yeah, I think it does. Yeah, drop us a line. So uh, I'm going to start out this, this topic with a really silly question, which is recidivism is a big word, and what, what does it mean? Uh, yeah, it's a word in the context of criminal justice, basically. It means uh, whether someone reoffends. So you're, uh, okay. yeah, so you get um, taken into the criminal justice system and charged and maybe you end up getting uh, convicted of a crime or you plead guilty or whatever, go to jail for a while. And then after you get released, do you end up 
back in the criminal justice system, back in jail for a second offense. That's recidivism. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so that's something that in the course of the, like one of the things that's been happening in uh, criminal justice systems over the past few years is that there's been a lot of adoption of an algorithm, like a data science algorithm, basically, that judges will use to get an estimate of the recidivism risk of a given defendant. And then they take that into account when they are doing the sentencing. So the rough idea here, Hmm. yeah, the rough idea here being that when someone is a high risk to reoffend, then that might be somebody that you give a steeper sentence to with presumably with the idea that if they're in jail, then they're not out on the street hurting somebody or damaging property or whatever. Right. Okay. I, so I can see, I can see the thinking behind putting an algorithm like that in place. And I can also see how an algorithm like that could just be a positive feedback loop for reinforcing the biases that already exist both in our society and in the criminal justice system itself. Yeah, so let's talk about how this actually works, because there's actually a number of layers to this. And I found it, once I started to dig in and do some of the research, I found it more complex than I was initially expecting. So the algorithm that people talk about the most is one called COMPASS. That's a acronym. Um, I forgot what it's for exactly. Uh, but it's an algorithm that, as an output, will give a score of 1 to 10. And that roughly corresponds to your, it's kind of like your percentile likelihood of uh, reoffending. So if you get a 10, that's like the worst score. So that says that um, out of uh, all of the people, like if there were 10 average people who were picked and you were compared to all of your, you know, stack ranked in terms of who was most likely to reoffend, uh, you were more likely than nine of them. So you're like the most likely to reoffend of like, you know, where the algorithm can go. Whereas if you get a four uh, on the scale of one to 10, then there's three who are less likely to offend than you are, but there are six who are more likely to offend. So you're somewhere in the, in the middle range. And um, just to clarify, this isn't actually someone's actual likeliness to reoffend, but instead the um, prediction that the algorithm gives. Well, I mean, the algorithm can't tell the future. Well, so, <laughs> uh, so correct. Yeah, a, I mean, it's a, the it's crystal a projection. Ball. It's a guess. Yeah. Right, right, uh, right. And so this algorithm, it's based on patterns uh, that it learns from the data about, you know, from previous cases of uh, criminals um, reoffending. So you can start to see where <laughs> that could be an issue. P- we'll put that, you know, on the shelf for a second. Um, but I just want to explain the ways that this algorithm is is built and some of the issues that it has. So there are a number of inputs that go into this algorithm. There's 137 uh, I read somewhere. I don't know what all 137 of them are. Let me just give like a quick a quick snapshot of where some of the problems are. But as as we'll see, it starts to get complicated pretty quickly. Quick snapshot. ProPublica did a really interesting piece a couple years ago where they took the outputs from this algorithm and they looked at people who did not reoffend two years after being let out of jail. So in this case, we have kind of the truth, the ground truth about mm. whether someone reoffended or not. The answer is no, they did not. 
And then they looked at the scores that were given to those uh, to those folks by Compass at the time they were being let out. Like two years ago. Exactly. Or so, yeah. Yeah. And so we know that they all had a quote-unquote like true risk of very low of being reoffenders, right? It was like zero. They didn't reoffend. Um, but they found that the uh, the black defendants who were being released had about a twice as high likelihood being predicted by the algorithm than the white defendants did. So it was usually something like, you know, 40 some percent for the black people and about 20 some percent for the white people. So on its face, that looks like a pretty clear sign of bias. Cause if you imagine how those scores are meant to be used, uh, then that means mm. that folks who were not going to reoffend if they were black were probably more likely to end up with heavier sentences and stay in jail longer, which seems pretty problematic to say the least. Yeah. Right. So here's where it starts to get interesting though. And here's where it starts to get a little more complicated. And, and part of the reason we want to go into some of these complications is because I think it's actually really important to understand, not just that there might be, an isolated problem here or there, but the way that the different pieces of the system interact with each other. So a couple places where it starts to get more interesting. Number one, I mentioned that there are 137 inputs to this algorithm. You know, what is not an input to this algorithm? Um, I want to I mean, say make something a, silly, make, but I yeah, mean, make a guess based on I, context here, right? I am <laughs> guessing that race or ethnicity or, or any of those yeah. types of things are not inputs to the algorithm. Correct. It is not Interesting. an input to the algorithm. So, so naively then, uh, I, I would be wrong, but I could say it seems like then the algorithm doesn't know what race, like whether these people are black or white, and so how could it have this bias would be my naive argument. How could it argument. be racist? Yeah. Right. So, and that is a... And that is a really interesting point. So it does not include race. Here are a bunch of things that it does include. It does include the neighborhood that you live in. It mm. does include your the history of arrests that you have. Um, and, you know, all of these things you're looking at, and you're like, well, you know, maybe that's if you've been arrested many times, uh, maybe that is you know one way to look at that is that is a that is a fair thing to take into account if you're saying are you likely to be arrested again but of course we're going to come back to why uh you know that data might be biased in the first place but let's leave it there for a second uh so how many times you've been arrested uh your whether you're employed or not mm -hmm. uh so these are all things that even though none of them are race directly. They all have correlations and relationships with race. So even though you're not putting someone's race directly into the algorithm, uh, the other inputs that you have are telling you effectively the same information or very similar information such that when you use those other variables to start making predictions, then you end up with something that can be racially biased. Right, I see. And so, and the reason that those things tell that story is because of the, is because of the ways in which our society is not equitable. 
Right. Um, right. And so, and that bias is in society is the thing that links these things together. Yeah. So let's come back to that for a fuller explanation. But yeah, that's where we're going. Okay. There are a couple of other things, though, that I want to mention here, because I think they fill out the picture of why this is so complex. And they were things that I started to, <laughs> my experience of um, researching for this episode, usually when I research for episodes, I'll spend, you know, whatever, a couple hours, like reading a paper and maybe taking some notes. And then by the end, I'm like, okay, I kind of, I think I kind of get it. And then we record this one was different. I read some news articles and some papers for about half an hour. And then I just sat and thought for about 45 minutes. <laughs> so I was like, hmm, what do we think of all this? Here are a couple other things that I found very interesting. So one is that, let me tell you another variable that goes into this algorithm. The variable is whether your parents were incarcerated. And Ooh, interesting. Right. So let's unpack that for a little bit. Number one, uh, why, why is that included in the algorithm? Well, it's included in the algorithm because presumably at some point, somebody was playing with different features as inputs to the algorithm. And they found that including that feature increased the accuracy of the algorithm overall. But at the same time, you know, I kind of read that and that made me stop and think, and I'm like, look, you know, who your parents are, is not something that you have any control over whatsoever. It's not something that you can change. And so when we think about something like, what is the correct way to sentence someone? And obviously, by the way, whether your parents were incarcerated, you know, insofar as incarceration rates uh, of blacks and whites have been different for mm -hmm. some time, then obviously that's going to correlate with your race, right? Right. So, um, you know, like, what are we trying to do when we are coming up with these sentences? And, and is it really in the spirit of sentencing people properly if we say, like, look, here's something that's completely not under your control at all, um, but it is going to be something that we account for and maybe keep you in jail longer, even though there's nothing you can do about it. You have no control over it. Mm. So, you know, the idea you, you of... have and you had no control over it either. Is, Correct. Like yeah. you said, you, it was, it's never, it's not a variable that ever was under your control. Yeah. It's not like, you know, something that could be like conceivably a repercussion of a, a choice that you made at some point, which, right. you know, some of these other ones, like you could, you could make that argument. I would, you know, might argue back on, on some of them, but you know, this is, this is one that really leapt out to me as something that like, there's just, yeah, there's no way that you can, um, affect any control on that as an individual. Uh, and so thinking through like, okay, maybe it does make your algorithm more accurate, but as, uh, insofar as like, what are we trying to achieve with this algorithm? Like, is that, is that an okay variable to include? The second thing that starts to make this more complicated. Oh, and just as an aside, like I get it as a machine learning person, like I want to make algorithms that are as accurate as possible all the time. Like that's not usually mm -hmm. something that I'm second guessing. Uh, if yeah. I see that, you know, <laughs> the accuracy of my algorithm improves, I'm like, cool, great, ship it. Um, yeah. But that's part of the reason I think it's important to talk about it with this, you know, in, in this forum and with this audience is because I think that's, you know, it's probably true of a lot of data scientists, but here's a case where I think you could make a real 
argument for shipping the less accurate model um, because you say like ultimately for the individuals who are going to be affected by it uh, that is the that is the better thing to do I think you could make that argument I think I would make that argument especially in light of you know all the all the thinking and talking we've been doing the last couple weeks okay so number one uh, the inputs that go into this are present some some are problematic, They're problematic perhaps, yeah. to say the least. <laughs> okay. Second thing is the other thing I found kind of complex about this and, and where it starts to become challenging when you research it is there was a, uh, a statistic that I cited a second ago, like for, pe- for criminals, people who did not reoffend, uh, black defendants were twice as likely as white ones to be labeled as future reoffenders. Like that seems bad, right? But that is like one way of capturing uh, a, a statistic about the equities or inequities of the algorithm. So condition, conditional upon someone not reoffending, what is their probability of reoffending? But there's a bunch of other ways that you can also try to capture the performance of the algorithm like what's the overall accuracy what is the area under the rock curve you know conditional on someone who does reoffend are their probabilities out of whack in in a similar way and a lot of those other kinds of model accuracy and quality metrics do not show for this algorithm that it's racially biased for example, the overall accuracy of the algorithm is, you know, approximately the same for black and white, uh, like predictions on black and white people. Uh, the area under the rock curve is quite close for those two cases. Uh-huh. So as a data scientist, again, I'm kind of sitting there thinking about this. And like, imagining, those are your metrics, right? Yeah, those are, like, it's not like this was a <laughs> a flagrantly racist thing if you're looking at it you know along some of these lines and yet uh we Hmm. know that it has all these issues and so so that's where that's where we enter at least for me kind of like the third level and the one that's the most interesting so prima facie looks kind of racist uh second layer layer deep is you realize as you start to pick it apart that it's a little bit more complicated and you're starting to have to think about trade-offs between you know the overall accuracy of the algorithm and whether you think it's making just predictions those kinds of things what metric you're picking starts to come into play uh, but here's sort of the third thing and i think the thing we're all uh thinking about much more is exactly what you you brought up a second ago um that the data that's being used to train this algorithm in the first place is reflecting all kinds of uh, underlying issues and inequities in the criminal justice system, especially ones that uh, disadvantage black people as they're going through the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Namely, that they get arrested at higher rates, that there might be many cases in which a white person say, doing some kind of minor act of minor misdemeanor or something like might get let go by a cop or not even stopped by a cop, whereas a black person who's doing something similar or even 
less troublesome gets all gets in all kinds of trouble with the cops you know they end up getting arrested and booked and then they're they have a mm-hmm. criminal record whereas the white person doesn't and so the data itself starts to reflect the biases in how the criminal justice system is even being applied in the first place and then the algorithm basically learns and industrializes those patterns so overall like the the effect of this is that uh, in general, the algorithm says that net-net, black people are much more likely to be classified with higher recidivism risk scores than white people. And to some extent, like where it starts to get really hard is that that's not inaccurate because black people are more likely to go out and be uh, in situations where they're being over-policed, where they're mm-hmm. being harassed by cops who are walking down the street or cruising by or whatever in a way that white people are not. And so it's not necessarily, you know, saying. It's not saying something about black people. It's saying something. I mean, it's saying something about the system. It's saying something about the way that the system interacts with uh, black people. Exactly. And so I was starting to think like, it really made me start to think about, there was an episode, you and I recorded this a couple weeks ago. I don't think it's released yet, so sorry, but it was... uh, (laughs) We're time traveling here. It'll come out soon, yeah. It was a piece about a couple of different algorithms. This was in the context of healthcare policy and using using algorithms to insert uh, like AI predictions into parts of the healthcare system. Yeah. And realizing that like, okay, you can have an algorithm that's actually super, super accurate or more accurate than like the alternative, like a human who's doing the same thing, say like looking at a, a scan of your eye or something, trying to diagnose you with a certain eye disease. Like the algorithm actually is comparable or better uh, than a human in many cases. And so it's really easy for us. I think for a long time, us in the data science community have been like, oh, cool. So this problem sounds like it's solved. Like, sure, we have to figure yeah. out how to like get it out into the world. But that seems like less challenging than uh, you know, collecting all this data and training this fancy algorithm and all this stuff. Right, right, right. Um, but the whole point of the algorithm or the, geez, uh, the whole point of the episode that we were talking about was that they actually find that going and putting these algorithms into deployment in context, like actually inserting them into the clinical process, they realize that they, everything gets totally messed up and they make things worse. It's way more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in this case, we're we're talking about one cog in the machine, which this algorithm, which on its own in a vacuum seems to be a pretty good algorithm. It uh, it is really accurate along a bunch of different metrics and axes, but one in context, it's maybe not as great, and two, it is. It is part of a number of cogs in the machine, all of which are creating what's basically a positive feedback loop. So once you're in the system, it's harder to stay out of the system. Yeah, exactly. That insofar as the system itself uh, has all kinds of stuff that's messed up about it, and insofar as this algorithm basically takes all of the data that's produced by that system and streamlines it into an algorithm that can can just like churn out predictions all day, 
Of course, yeah. what it's going to do is it's going to churn out predictions that just give you back like the status quo and the status quo and the status quo over and over again. So it like industrializes it and scales it in uh, in a way that then it becomes super clear that you're just you're scaling the uh, the inequities is what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Uh, the any algorithm is a reflection of the data that it was trained on, and if the data that it was trained on is biased or is data from a society that is heavily biased, then you're going to get a biased algorithm, which actually seems to be a seems to be a conclusion that we come to in a lot of our episodes, uh, including ones that we talk about specifically trying to remove bias from data sets. Yeah, the thing that I ended up finally settling on is number one, I hope you understand more about this algorithm now because uh, it is actually more complicated than I had initially thought. And in ways that force, at least they force me to think pretty deeply about issues that I don't usually think about in the course of m- most machine learning stuff. Like what is a, what is a fair input to have to an algorithm? Is it, is it fair mm. to make an algorithm more accurate if it introduces injustice in a way that you, that you, uh, realize once you think about context, right? Right, right. Uh, And then the second thing is, you know, this is another case of if you're sitting there in a vacuum, working on an algorithm, like pulling in your inputs, pushing out your outputs, and then just trying, spending all of your intelligence and energy and attention just trying to tune the algorithm so that it has the highest AUC you can squeeze out of it. And you're not thinking about where those inputs come from. And you're not thinking about what those outputs are going to be used for and what, what is the context in which they will be deployed. Then, you know, in a lot of cases, maybe it's fine. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, not every algorithm is like the world's greatest challenge to deploy, but where you're trying to insert algorithms into processes that are themselves like complicated and messy and challenging, like healthcare delivery or like the criminal justice system. Like I think as a data scientist, sure, you know, knock yourself out on the algorithm, but the thing that you should really, really spend your time and your all of your brain power thinking about is the context in which the algorithm sits. Like, what is it that we want to automate? Do we really, really want to automate it? And think about that very, very carefully uh, and how it's going to interact with the other pieces of the system around it that you are not going to be able to touch. And only then should you maybe really start to worry about your algorithm itself. Because as we all know, like, tuning a machine learning algorithm. It's not, it's not trivial, but it's not, you know, there are known ways to do it. It's, that's not usually the hardest part of the problem. Uh, instead leaving some of that contextual stuff for the end is almost guaranteeing that you're going to, at the very least hit, hit a surprise or two. And in the worst cases, you, you might realize that you're, you're really messing with the system in ways that you don't understand and that do not lead to better outcomes. Uh, so it's, I think that's a important lesson for all of us to, to carry around in general. And it seems to be particularly important here. Definitely. Um, as an engineer in Silicon Valley, I've had 
uh, a number of situations where uh, people will be asking the question, oh, how do we do it? But very few people are asking the question, should we do it? And I think that as we record this in early June of 2020, people are starting to think about that a little bit more um, in the context of their day-to-day work, trying to see their work in context, like you were saying. Um, yeah, it's it's really important. And um, I mean, none of us want to wake up one day and realize we've made an atomic bomb, right? Uh, I mean, that's the, the crazy example. And actually, I, I'm reading a book called The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which I think is maybe why that comes up. But um, when you're really close to a problem and you're working on it really hard, you can, at least I can get very wrapped up in the intricacies of the problem that's right in front of me. And like you were saying, not necessarily see the greater context. And I think that seeing the greater context is perhaps more important than solving the problem. Well said. So uh, that is where we will leave you for this week. Everybody stay safe. Um, And then just a quick repeat, like we said, of the announcement from the top. Uh, We would like to use this platform to tell some of the stories about things that some of you, I imagine, are working on, especially uh, stories from the Black community for uh, tech, data science, AI, what have you, since those are really positive stories that we think deserve to have have an outlet for them. So uh, if that, if you're the, uh, like a Black founder or owner of a company or a project or uh, open source initiative, whatever, that you think would be interesting to our audience, get in touch and we'll, uh, we'll start a conversation with you, like figure out, uh, which of those stories are, are some of the best ones for our audience. And then would love to have you come talk about it here. So get in touch, Katie at LinearDigressions.com, K-A-T-I-E, uh, Ben at LinearDigressions.com. B-E-N. B-E-N. Easier to spell, right? Yeah. And actually, I just I just test. Hello does work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. see. It just popped up. Yeah. Yeah. Hello at LinearDigressions.com. And bear with us a little bit. You know, we might we might have a little bit of a turnaround time on replying to your emails, but we will reply to them. So I hope to hear from you and have some really great stories that we can share on the podcast over the or the coming weeks and months, because I'm sure there are great stories to tell. So uh, with that, anything else, Ben? Nope, that's it. All right. Stay safe, everyone. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.